kick is blocked. Appalachian State has stunned the college football world. One of the greatest upsets in sports history. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. High fly ball center field. That ball is belted. Waited 19 months to say it, fellas. Listen to this crowd. In your life have you seen anything like that? The plan of hand is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to show. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! The great games of history and the voices who made them come alive. This is Behind the Mic with Doug Rice. Today's guest on this edition of PRN's Behind the Mic, the voice of the Florida Gators, Sean Kelly. Here's all motions, right to left, handoff ETN. Good hole right side, 25-30, 35 head from midfield, down the right sideline, foot race to the end zone, Sean Kelly is our guest. Sean, I love the flourish at the end with the triple wow. Very nice. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. I I sometimes uh, wonder what will come out of my mouth. (laughs) Don't we all? But isn't that that part of the fun of all of this is that there is no script? That's right. And, you know, everybody asks me about signature calls or phrases or anything like that. I really don't have one. I just – it is unscripted. It is supposed to be emotional and in the moment. So – that's kind of where it goes, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes <laughs> maybe I'd like to have it back. Yeah, yeah. Once once it hits once it hits the mic, it's gone. Uh, I read a couple of different articles about you, and one there was a quote that said, "I'm in the place that I'm supposed to be as the voice of the Florida Gators." After a year and some change, you still feel that way? Yeah, I really do, uh, and maybe even more so. Um, it's what I wanted it to be, and then some. And a lot of that has to do with the people I get to work with and the young people I get to be around now. And, um, you know, not to mention, I still have my hand in with ESPN radio. And so I still, you know, get to work with some of those colleagues and, and those events too. So it's, it's worked out. Uh, and I'm very blessed in that sense. You know, sometimes it doesn't, you know, unfold that way, but that's the way it has gone. And, and I would say this August, I'm a little less anxious and a little, uh, more relaxed than I was a year ago at this time. Well, that that has to come with the expectation of your job and also I would think familiarity with the teams that you're calling. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 not unpacking boxes and yeah. worrying about whether my house in Louisiana was going to sell, you know, uh, all those things play into it. Uh, yeah, and just even working with different the coaching staffs, you know, they they're more familiar with me, I'm more familiar with them and um, and I can get around town without the use of my phone, which is a win as well. <laughs> yeah, turn off the GPS. I don't need ways anymore. That's right. You're originally from St. Louis, and I know that influenced you in many ways. Uh, who were who were the voices of Sean Kelly's childhood? Some of the best in the business. I mean, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, of course. Uh, Bob Costas was still 
prominent in St. Louis during that portion of his broadcast career, um, you know, at least when I was younger. But, you know, I got exposed to Bill Wilkerson and Bob Starr and Dan Kelly, uh, Ken Wilson eventually. Um, it was really a market that probably outpunched its weight in quality of broadcasters. And, you know, obviously Jack Buck was was my hero and had a lot to do with what I wanted to be, not just as a sportscaster, but as an ambassador of, you know, said team that you, that I'd be working for. So it was a great influence to me. And I, and I grew up in a home too, where the radio seemingly was always on. And maybe sometimes mom was actively listening to the game or it was just there and keeping us company during the summer. So, um, you know, and shoot, I can, re- I can remember playing, you know, uh, CYO soccer or whatever that was in grade school. And those games would be on a Saturday and we'd be playing on the field. And, and yet I'd hear Bill Wilkerson's voice calling Missouri football somewhere. Some dad had a transistor radio on the sideline. So um, it, it was as much a, uh, a part of the fabric of the community as anything else. Were you one of those kids laid in bed, listening to the games at night? Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I, I remember doing that. And, you know, especially, you know, the Cardinals would be out west, you know, and so that would be two hours behind the central time zone. And so maybe I might get my homework done in time to, to catch a little bit of the game before I fell asleep. And it wasn't all the time, but certainly there were times um, where that was the case. You know, the Cardinals won the World Series in 1982. I was 10 years old, and I, I firmly believe that 10 to 12 is kind of this magical time in a boy's life. And to have that team, and I, you know, I remember – clipping out the, the, the box scores and they used to in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, you know, during that World Series, they would literally write out the play-by-play of pitch-by-pitch how the game would go. And so I would save those clippings and listen to the games and got to know all those players, you know, by name, number, and whatnot at the time. And um, I think that had a great impact too. And that started that that big run there with Whitey Herzog and the Cardinals. So Nothing was hotter in St. Louis than the Cardinals, and, and by extension, then those broadcasts too. And so it had a heavy influence on me. I was going to ask you the highlight of your childhood as far as St. Louis sports was concerned, and also the game or the season that, that broke your heart. Oh, well, I mean, 82, obviously, as I just described, 85, Don Dinkinger blows a call at first base in game six, and the Cardinals end up losing the World Series to the Royals. You know, that was a heartbreaker. And they're right back at it again in 87. And then Kirby Puckett and the Twins, that was their magical year. And then I remember still, you know, in high school too, when the, when the Big Red, the football team, left St. Louis, it broke my heart. Um, I wasn't an NFL fan again until I latched on to John Elway and the Denver Broncos. You know, I guess that had been around the same time or a couple of years later. But, you know, those were heartbreak moments. Um, you know, the Blues were were uh, a lot of fun, but they weren't winning anything during that time. Uh, the other thing that was big in St. Louis at the time was, of all things, indoor soccer. Well, St. Louis Steamers would draw the same number as the Blues. I mean, 18,000 people. And so it was a great sports town. You had, you had stuff going on year-round. It was dominated, obviously, by the baseball Cardinals. But it provided enough roller coaster for me to, you know, love and have heartbreak all at the same time in sports. All right. I've done a lot of these shows with different sportscasters. I think you're the first person ever, Sean, to reference indoor soccer, just for the record. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Unless you had somebody like from Baltimore where the Baltimore Blasts were a big deal or, uh, you know, Wichita had a big franchise at the time. I, I don't know. St. Louis was the North American soccer capital uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, it was, you know, wildly popular and that and again that 
that steamers team. I can I can name you players like Carl Rose and Tony Glavin and uh, you know the games were on the radio with a guy named Bob Ramsey calling him. I, it, it was it was crazy, and I understand that's not something that would normally come up in these conversations, but it's a part of it's a part of my sports upbringing for sure. You spent some time at uh, Southern Illinois University getting a communications major. Uh, what what drew you to that school? And it sounds like by then you'd already decided, okay, I want to I want to get behind the mic. Yeah, I first went off to college in Kirksville, Missouri, at Northeast Missouri State, which is now Truman State. It was a division. It is a Division two school. And when I finally made the decision, okay, this is you know this is what I want to do. I realized that um, that they didn't have kind of the communications program that would lead me to what I believe to be greater success. And so I'm looking around at schools in order to transfer to. One of them was SIU in Carbondale, and and I. I learned that I could get in-state tuition in Illinois faster than most of the states around me. And when I went to visit, I heard this guy named Mike Reese. Uh, and he was, he was the voice of the Salukis. He just retired this past spring. But I just remember being captivated by him calling basketball. It was that time of year. And I said to myself, I, that's the guy I want to go learn from. Uh, he doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to force myself into that. <laughs> and so that's what, that's what made me transfer to SIU. And at the time, they probably had a top five ranked radio television program in the country. It's since fallen off, but uh, that's what it was at the time. And so sure enough, I packed it up and headed for Carbondale and, uh, and found a way to not only get my study started, but work right away and, and find a way to get as much Mike Reese as I could get. Was the campus radio station a big part of that? Uh, no, not really, because um, for me, when I was in Kirksville, I had kind of found a way to get into the top 40 station in little old Kirksville, Missouri. And so I had I had just a little bitty bit of commercial radio experience when I moved to Carbondale, and I was able to translate that into a job at the local rock station. And the job was to come in and DJ from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. I mean, it was a monster-long shift. Um, but I also knew that it, it would be maybe an entree into becoming their sports guy. And so I convinced the morning show host, who was also the program director, hey, let me record sportscasts for your morning show before I leave my shift at 6 a.m. And so by doing that, I quote-unquote became the sports director at WTAOFM, and that allowed me to get credentialed to go and cover uh, Southern Illinois sports and and maybe even do some stuff up in St. Louis, like go cover a Cardinals game just for the fun of it. So that was my grand plan. Now, it just about killed me uh, to try and go to school all day. I worked another job as well, and then I would work that radio thing overnight. That's how it started in January of 1993. Uh, and thankfully, I was able to make adjustments and changes as it progressed. I'm, I'm curious because that's some of my background. Uh, what what music were you playing, and how were you playing it? By then, were you playing carts, CDs? T- tell me about your time as as a rock jock, Sean. Yeah, it, it, you know that that station was a classic rock station. Um, it did play some of the newer stuff as well. I mean, it was you know Rock 105 TAO, and it was during that strange time in radio where, you know, uh, and again, this started in Kirksville, but. I still remember editing commercials, doing production, building sports casts, uh, splicing reel to reel, and then maybe you'd run that and you'd record that on a cart, uh, and then carts were for spots and for recorded sports casts. 
and then the music itself uh, at that point was primarily on CD at that point. Um, there was still some vinyl. In fact, the first job I had at uh, KTUFFM in Kirksville, Missouri, my very first radio job was uh, Saturdays and Sunday afternoons. I would play Casey Kasem on Saturday and Rick Dees on <laughs> Sunday. And at the time, those top 40 countdowns came on vinyl. And so you'd have to queue up the vinyl and you'd play. And then once an hour, the vinyl would have a gap in it. And that's where you could do the weather forecast. And so my first on-air stuff, me actually speaking into a microphone, going out over the air, was the weather forecast once an hour during Casey Kasem and Rick Dees. So um, by the time I got out of music radio, you know, and was just doing sports solely, I'm sure they had, they were, uh, you know, as they called it, wild tracking stuff and a lot of the stuff was starting to come off of computer at that point. Oh, that's fantastic. That is so good to hear that because that's, I think that's been a journey for a lot of people. Uh, let's talk yeah. a little bit about your journey, Sean. I, now you're, you're, you're in this really nice niche of being the voice for a major university in the SEC, but you've also done a lot of national broadcasts and you spent some time at Tulane. Give us sort of the, the, down low on your career after you left southern illinois you you, you want to go broadcasting you're not playing rock jock anymore uh yeah how, how, what got you to where you are now well I, I had the guts to take a job in columbia missouri uh and be their part-time sportscaster at twelve thousand dollars a year um but i knew I, I i had this you know knack for being confident in myself or cocky whatever word you want to use I figured if I could get in the door and show them what I could do, I could turn that into a full-time job. And that, and that's what it became. But much like a TAO or, you know, other stops for most of us on our radio career, somehow I avoided having to do sales, but that didn't mean that I wasn't hosting the uh, swap shop on Saturday morning after calling high school football on a Friday night and, you know, uh, doing severe weather coverage or a news shift or host a talk show. It was a myriad of things in Columbia, which really gave me a lot of experience, you know, across a lot of things beyond sports, which was great. But at the same time, I was building my career sports-wise by covering then a major Division One university, doing the play-by-play -play of their baseball team, and then got in the door with Learfield uh, doing pregame half and post for Tigers football and basketball. Um, and so that eventually got me into the Learfield then slash ISP family. And that opened the door for me to go to Tulane. So the goal all along was, can I be a voice of said place? And so I got my big break there in 2002, got the Tulane job, packed up my family, and we moved to New Orleans. And I thought, okay, well, here we go. This is what I wanted to do. And, and off we went. Little did I know that at the same time, the Charlotte Hornets were moving from Charlotte, North Carolina to New Orleans. And eventually, my Tulane uh, duties would overlap with some Hornets duties, and then, sure enough, that evolved into call it right place, right time. Uh, when a change was made in that organization, I was hired on full-time as the play-by-play -play announcer for the New Orleans Hornets and then proceeded to uh, leave the college world for years and, and was in the, the, the NBA and eventually slash NFL through the New Orleans franchises for what turned out to be the next 14 to 15 years. So that's where it evolved, and then – uh, I'm giving you the long, the long road. No, I want to hear here. that. I mean, um, a lot of time yeah. in the Crescent City for Sean Kelly. Yeah, a lot of time, a lot of time in New Orleans, and then uh, raised my family there, and then was able to stay there when, um, after I was dabbling part time on some national stuff, uh, Steve Haddad at ESPN Radio hired me full time to come 
to the worldwide leader and and started on that journey there, which took me through the pandemic, which is a whole nother podcast. But, yeah. um, you know, so then I became a national guy and loved every bit of it. I was back doing multiple sports again, working with the best people in the business. And then lo and behold, a year ago this time, this Florida thing pops so up. How, so how long were you? That's the, the Reader's Digest version. How, yeah. That's a great reference. I use that and people look at me like, what's that? Uh, yeah, you have to be of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, you do, John. You certainly do. Uh, how long were you with the Four Letter Network exclusively then? Exclusively for th- just over three years. So I was with them all together six years, part-time three. Uh, full-time three and I was actually negotiating my my next three-year contract when when this whole thing came up for Gainesville so um, yeah I mean it was it was just enough to really kind of settle in before sure enough change was coming again so you you're doing ESPN you're doing all kind of national games I'm assuming you're doing baseball basketball football whatever came across the assignment desk right yeah so I was doing Gosh, it was getting close to 85 events a year thereabouts. Um, I was the lead. I was the lead play-by-play guy on college football. I had an NFL package, which made for some interesting weekends. Uh, I was the lead on college basketball at ESPN Radio. Um, and then I worked with Mark Kestisher was the lead on NBA, and I was right behind him. So the two of us pretty much carried the load on that big NBA contract uh, for ESPN Radio. And then the occasional TV thing, NBA Summer League, uh, you know, it's just different assignments. But, but yeah, almost year-round, you know, and that included, you know, a handful of Major League Baseball games too, which was, again, going back to my roots in St. Louis was the thrill of a, of a lifetime for sure. Sean, when you were doing games during the pandemic, when they finally started around, where did you have to do some games remote, sit at home and watch a monitor or any of that? Yeah, and that's, you know. Uh, it had to be awful. We, we started back up and I was in the bubble, the NBA bubble. So we kind of made our way through that. And then the decision was came down that we were going to get going on football, but we didn't have the remote kits all together yet. So I remember going from Orlando from the NBA bubble to do two NFL games. The first two games of the year, one was in Minnesota in an empty stadium. The other one was in East Rutherford at MetLife in an empty stadium uh, which was a surreal experience to say the least. Uh, and then by that time they got the remote kids together. So from then on, we were doing games, uh, from our homes, uh, you know, through zoom, all kinds of different kind of duct tape and chicken wire type stuff to make it work. Um, we were all happy to be working again, but it was just such a challenge. Uh, and that lasted until, Oh, probably February, early March, when we started to have some issues when we were doing our NBA games. And so they decided that they couldn't risk going off the air or that kind of thing. I remember PJ Carlissimo and I did an NBA game where we lost the video feed for the entire first quarter. So we were kind of just like discussing what we were seeing that was on our stat monitors for a quarter. And... That was the end of that. So they decided that I would have to fly to Bristol and I would work out of a studio in Bristol, Connecticut, and I would do a week or two at a time, go home for a week, then go back for two weeks more. And we did that all the way through the NBA playoffs that year. That's how we made it through that 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 big COVID year where everything was coming back to life. So uh, thankfully beyond that, we, we started getting back on site again with a lot of restrictions, but 
yeah, that was one of the most challenging years of my career. Again, I'm, I'm thankful that we were working. I'm, I'm thankful that we could be something of entertainment for some folks who, you know, obviously still weren't working or not able to travel or anything else. So it's something I'll never forget, truly, just like all of us. You know, I, I think back to Katrina, and for those of us that were in Louisiana for Katrina, it's everything is either pre-Katrina or post-Katrina. And now nationally or internationally, for that matter, I think a lot of us mark time by pre-COVID, post-COVID. So all those things kind of played into my career as well. Oh, I, I can't find fault. The way you did that quarter of basketball, if memory serves me right, that's the way Ronald Reagan used to do baseball. He would read, it, it was, he would read yes. the ticker and, and recreate the game for you. He didn't actually know what was going on. He was just reading a wire report and calling baseball. Yes, and, and you know you don't want to – I mean, obviously that was a regular thing for Reagan and all those broadcasters. Uh, and if the ticker tape broke or shut down, maybe a guy fouled a pitch off 25 times until the ticker was back up and running. We didn't, we didn't have that luxury, and because it was kind of foreign to us, it's not like we could say, boy, you can smell the stale beer in the stands, and you know everybody, everybody's wearing their Celtic green tonight or whatever it was. And we were just trying to survive and just trying to be honest with people that we had lost our video feed and, you know, bear with us and we'll try and get it back up and running. That's I, all we could do. I know the pain. It's when we do an NASCAR race, if scoring goes down. Just, <laughs> yes. Okay. I can see cars. I have no what idea what they're doing in relationship to each other, but they're still going around in circles. You are a, a broadcaster slash firefighter. I find that fascinating. Oh. You were. So uh, give, give yeah. that story. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, so back in 2012, um, I was working just for the NBA team. So if the NBA team didn't have a great season, you know, no playoffs, uh, I would have this giant offseason, which was great because it's such a grind, that 82-game schedule, the NBA, and the travel that goes along with it uh, because you're not in any one city, you know, like in baseball for days at a time. But so I had this big offseason, and I can't hardly sit still. That's, you know, that's a big problem for me. I always always seem to have a side hustle. so I got this wild hair. I, you know, I discovered that the fire department next to the town that I lived in uh, was a mix of volunteer and paid guys. And I'd always kind of had an interest in it. And sure enough, um, I decided to become a volunteer firefighter with all that time in the off season. Uh, did the training for that, got qualified for that, loved it so much that the chief recognized it and said, look, there's this, LSU does this online class for firefighting. And you can do it any time on your schedule. And then what we'll do is we'll do the practicals or the physical part of the training um, when you're able to around your, your work schedule. I said, perfect, great. So sure enough, the season was about to begin. I started doing my online stuff either between cities on the plane or on an off day. And then as my schedule allowed, I'd go in and, and do the practicals that go along with each chapter. And sure enough, I was ready to go. I, you know, you, There's all kinds of stages to go through hazmat this that and the other but nearly in the end of the season i was ready to take my exam for firefighter one and so i went and took it and did really well and that allowed me then to to become a full firefighter and then they put me on the paid staff in that i became a flex guy and that's what the chief's vision was the whole time which was during the off season i'll have you on a regular shift and then during the season, you just give me your schedule at the start of the month, and I'll match that up with guys being off or sick or whatever, and that's how you'll keep up, you know, during the NBA season. So it just grew, and, and um, it was uh, it was a thrill. And, of course, that was so foreign to anything I had ever studied or trained for 
I was very stimulated by it mentally, the, the fire science part, the medical part of it, all of it. And I ended up doing that for five or six years. But the understanding was eventually my schedule would get to be where I couldn't balance both careers, if you will. And so sure enough, especially when the ESPN stuff really started to take off, uh, and I was also still doing the Pelicans and Saints stuff, uh, we had to have that talk. And, and they wanted to like say, well, we can make this work. I said, no, no, this isn't safe for me and isn't safe for my, the guys on my crew. So that's when I hung it up. But during that time, though, I was probably the only – NBA broadcaster slash firefighter in the history of the business. That's so for sure. do you have a firefighting story? Did you save uh, a dog or something? Uh, I, I had to get a guy out of a tree one time. That was interesting. Usually it's a cat, person. but okay, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the police have been chasing this guy around all night. Uh, he had been, he had been on something and was knocking on people's doors, and just being a nuisance. And so they, he climbed up a tree to avoid getting captured, I guess. And so eventually the police department called us, and we had to come out, and I climb a ladder and go up and, and try and convince this guy to come down out of the tree. Um, and I help him down. But before I got that, on that ladder to go up there, I said, look, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to tell this guy that everything's going to be just fine. Now, you know, obviously you, you're going to be in a little trouble here, but – you know, we got to get you out of this tree. I made those police officers who were really, really angry at the time after chasing this guy around for a couple hours. I said, you got to promise me something. When I get him out of this tree, you cannot manhandle him. You cannot take out your frustration on him because I'll never get him down if I can't give him my word that right. you won't do that. So sure enough, I got the guy out of the tree. But, you know, everything from fighting fire or, um, you know, I think – not only performing CPR or life-saving measures to also educating the public about it was gratifying to me. But one of the things that really stuck out almost from day one was that the guys that were kind of taking me under their wing, they said to me, look, you need to be in the mindset that you're probably coming up on somebody's worst day. And if you keep that in mind, you'll probably do well in this job and it won't, it won't wreck you. And that was really, really sage advice. And I'm glad they told me that because, yeah, a lot of times I pulled up on a, on somebody's worst day. And then sometimes you, you'd have a moment where, you know, you pull up on a scene, it looks awful, and it turns out everybody's going to be okay. And, and those, those things were good too. But certainly things that will stay with me, positive and negative, for the rest of my life, um, you know, not to get too deep into the details. No, but what a what a great chapter to have in your life. That is just that's yeah, fantastic. Really Thanks for sharing that yep. with us, Sean. Appreciate no that. No problem. I love. Well, good. Let's get back to some sports casting here. You've done the national thing where you're the announcer and you have no vested interest. You're now the voice for one of the most best known brands in the country. Uh, let's let's hear another little football play here. Burke motions left to right. Fake the handoff, straight drop, Richardson throws toward the end zone, Pearsall climbs the ladder, makes the catch, touchdown, Gators! Once again, I love the flourish at the end. That's got to be just the best when you're invested in a team and they pay off. Yeah, no, it, it is, and and probably if you pulled 15 touchdowns last year, they might all sound different. I was just trying to feel my way around a little bit, but... Um, you know, there's there's such passion in this fan base as there isn't so many in the SEC and around the country. Um, and yes, and, and that's something that I desired 
to to do again, which was be a part of a team and 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 go through that journey with them. So it didn't take long for me to feel the emotion of those big moments. Now, you know, everybody asks me, well, what about doing a national game? Well, I mean, then then you feel those things for both teams. The bottom line, though, is I'm a big believer in serving the game itself. Um, they keep pushing around here to put GoPro cameras in the booth, and I'm fighting it in a big way. Um, I'm just a firm believer. Maybe that's my, my upbringing, but anything I can do to serve the game uh, and, and do it well in the sense that, like you said, a flourish at the end, you know, uh, John Martin Chief, who was the man who basically built ESPN Radio's event side, you know, he always called it climbing the ladder or punching the call. So, um, you know, there's a lot of emotion riding with fan bases and the building itself. And and so you want to do that. And the, and the thing I had to learn, too, a little bit is a little bit on radio, but maybe more so on TV is to is to let the stadium or that crowd of that atmosphere tell the story. Get out of the way. Shut up. Don't talk, you know, and and let the moment be what it is. So those are just kind of the, uh, you know, that's a little look into kind of my philosophy on that stuff. I'm, I'm always fascinated by how different people approach it. Uh, Florida, primarily known as a football school. Uh, let's hear a little basketball. Out to Lofton. Lofton with eight. Leaves it for Kugel on a flying alley-oop. Right hand. Tomahawk. Dunk. Yes, yes, yes. And Florida has won the ball game. Sean Kelly, you sound like you're having such a good time. Why not? What a job. I mean, is it yeah. really a job? I mean, it really isn't. I, you know that. You've been doing this, too, a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed. I mean, I always tell young people, I said, do the thing where you don't feel like it's work. Get out of bed every day looking forward to going to work. And I loved not knowing what's going to happen most every day that I go to work. And I'm, when I say go to work, I mean going to do a broadcast a game. And so uh, it, it's 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 fun. Don't get me wrong. There's there's games that suck. <laughs> there, <laughs> yes, there are. There, there there are clunkers out there, and you're going to get them. Um, but man, when you get a big moment like that, of course, I did so much NBA stuff that basketball comes real easy to me, and I'm able to even more on the NBA side than the college basketball side. I'm able to anticipate maybe more so than any other sport I do. So I'm able to have fun with the call a little bit, be a little more playful as opposed to a sport that maybe I don't do as often, and then you feel like you're kind of surviving at some point. You know my buddy uh, Steve Holman down at the Hawks? Yes, yes. He's a pro. Man, well, he's a pro, I mean, and an Iron Man. And so I've known Steve, you know, for a long time. I guess, gosh, I guess I've known him 20 years now. So, um, you know, again, I was really blessed when I got into the NBA. You had Steve Holman and, of course, Al McCoy, and Hot Rod was still around, and, uh, you know, there were some legendary voices that were not nearing the end of their career, but they were late in their career, and I got to be around them a little bit. I, Sean Grandy and I were kind of the young bucks in the NBA back at that time. So um, I don't know about – I don't want to speak for Sean, but certainly I was going to take advantage of being around those guys as much as I possibly could. And, you know, thankfully Mike Breen and those guys, you know, were very good to me in teaching me how to do not just basketball but NBA basketball and, and how to handle that life. So I'm truly grateful for that. So, a little behind the scenes here, I worked at a radio station in Salisbury, North Carolina, WSTP, which also produced Bob Rathbun, who does the Hawks on television, and Marty Brenneman. And I was the third one from a 1,000-watt radio station. So, it must have been something that's in the awesome. water. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. No, you, you, you were uh, amongst the privileged few that got to really, uh, you know, learn at the hand of those guys, for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's... Uh, 
I, I've always appreciated the fact, I've, I've read a lot about you, the words humble come up a lot, and I, I really like that. But it's also, let's let's have a little bit of fun with this. Let's uh, play our last clip here. Nobody can seemingly figure out whether he is a part of the game day staff here or not, and now the security is after him. Santa turning the corner at the 20, to the 25 and the 30. He's lost his hat and being chased by Johnny Big Lunch in a security outfit. 30, 25, 20. To the 15, to the 10. Here comes some help. Santa eludes him. Touchdown, Santa Claus. <laughs> All right, that is that is some of the best audio I have ever heard. Sean, oh. you want to tell me what was going on there? I don't know the backstory. I, I was channeling my inner Kevin Harlan, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we were at Texas. This, I guess this was, it was 2021? I guess so. So we're at Austin, Texas, doing a game there. Uh, it was still early in the season, so it was hotter than all get out. And we're we're coming back from a timeout on radio, and TV's not back yet, so play hasn't resumed. Out of the corner of my eye, I catch this guy climbing over the wall and getting on the field in a Santa Claus outfit. And my producer is is scrambling to try and hit the switch and tell the studio, keep it, keep it, keep it, because now he knows – he thinks there's going to be some kind of delay because this guy's going to run on the field. And I looked at him and I just, I kind of waved him off. I said, I'll take, let's have it. And I thought, this will be fun. I mean, the game's kind of a stinker. So this guy climbs over on the field and, and then the chase begins. And so the young kid dressed as Santa Claus darts on the field and actually lasts a lot longer than, than I think many would have expected. So I decided, why not? Let's have some fun and let's call a play by play of this this poor kid who's, who's it's not going to end well. You know it's not going to end well, right? But will, will he make it to the end zone? You know, how many guys will it take to bring him down? Um, and so I, I just kind of got caught in the moment. I thought, this, you know, we're supposed to have fun doing this job, right? So why not have some fun? And I know. How did you describe the of, security guard again? Uh, Johnny Big Lunch, which probably <laughs> wasn't very nice. That's awesome. God bless him. God, yeah. God bless the guy. And, and and he was giving it every effort he could. And and I know a lot of times, you know, like when you watch a game on TV, they turn the cameras away from the field. So, yeah. it's, you know, it doesn't get glorified or whatever. I, you know, I was just like, I don't really care. This is going to be fun, and let's just do it. So that's how that happened. And, and it kind of took off briefly and then kind of went away. And then, sure enough, I get the Florida job, and it started popping back up all over again. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this what I'm going to be known for? But, you know. Thanks for bringing it back. Not everybody gets to call Santa Claus being cuffed and stuffed. That's true. Okay, that's that's, that's very yeah. rare moments. So you should be proud of that, well, Sean. I, 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 should. I, I, should. I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, I'm fascinated by how people have progressed, and there's so many paths to getting to do these jobs. And I like talking to them because there aren't many folks doing this. I mean, you're one. Well, you're one of a very few people that are getting to call games nationally plus for a major university. And it's, it's always yeah. interesting to me to find out how you got there. I'm extremely fortunate. And some of it was probably my doing, but most of it probably was just either fate timing, you know, somebody didn't show up. I, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons as to how it happens, but uh, I, I'm truly blessed in, in those ways. And I appreciate the kind words. Um, there's a lot of people in our business and you know, this, that are extremely talented and great people uh, 
that may never get the chance to do some of the things that I've gotten to do. And I don't ever take that for granted. Uh, and, and I have also, I also can feel their pain or, or understand their frustration when, you know, maybe a, a big break or an opportunity that they thought they were ready for. It just didn't go their way. It's, it's a subjective business and that, that part stinks a little bit. And the way that I came up is different now than, than this generation works through the, you know, climbing the, the ranks, if you will. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful and gosh darn it. I, you know, I'm just going to try and keep fooling them. And, and as long as I can fool them, uh, then I maybe I get to keep doing this. All right. Well, Sean, I, I, I do know this. One of the factors is building relationships with people on the way up and, and they will keep pushing you forward and they'll lift you along. That's, that's been one thing that's been a consistent in everybody I've talked to. Thanks for sharing your time. Good luck to your Gators. What what are they going to do this year? Give me the football. Yeah, I, give me football. I, quick synopsis of Florida Gator football this year. Rightfully so, based on last year, uh, based on those who left the program, uh, the prognosticators don't have the Gators faring well this fall. I, I will say this, I, and I and I I'm okay with that because that's what they're going off of. Just from what I have been around this program this summer through training camp so far, the Gators are better than people think they are. Are they contending for anything? No, but but they're certainly not. I don't think they're going to finish where where these folks are saying they will. So uh, my partner Shane Matthews, who is extremely ob- objective when it comes to this, even though he, you know, he was Spur- Spurrier's first big quarterback here, he thinks this team's going to win a minimum of eight. Um, Gosh, eight wins in year 200 billion Napier would be pretty spectacular. Anything more than that, I think, would be unreal. Um, but Graham Mertz has 32 starts on his career, and you can read into what you want about his time at Wisconsin. I just know what I've seen here of late. I think he's a good guy in Billy Napier's system, uh, and they've got a lot of things around him, albeit some of them young. Uh, that this this football team's going to surprise some people, and. Uh, and that's good because their schedule is brutal. This year in 24, uh, the 2024 schedule are just that might be the two hardest schedules this place has ever run itself through. So uh, I'm encouraged. I think they've got the right guy as their head football coach. And uh, it's not easy for a fan base that is not a patient one, but they're going to have to be a little bit patient here. But this is going to be in the right direction under Napier. So uh, I think a step in the right direction this year. And then um, at the moment, the 24 recruiting class is ranked number three by those who do those, do those kind of things. So I think the trajectory is pretty good for the Gators right now. Sean, sounds fantastic. Hope you get to call some fun games this season, and we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks thanks a lot for having me. It's it's good to, to, to reflect on how, how this has gone sometimes, and uh, I, was, uh, I was certainly honored for you to have me and share a couple stories. Sean Kelly, the voice of the Florida Gators.